Good morning, folks. Good morning. Hansen Lomodofa Summit, Mitpadechu, and Mennonit. Today, we are gathered for a special meeting with several varieties and flavors of Amish and Mennonite race people to discuss pacifism in our various communities and how we see it now. So, before we begin, I'd like to say Happy Veterans Day to the veterans out there and especially to AJ as a veteran. Thank you and happy Veterans Day. <clears throat> With that being said, um, the purpose of, of all of this is to facilitate a conversation where we can discuss pacifism, what it means, what it is, and how the world sees it versus what we experienced inside of our communities. Uh, with that being said, please go around and introduce yourselves. Tell me what pacifist community were you raised in and why are you here today? Starting with AJ. Hi, everyone. I'm AJ. Um, I grew up in Kelowna, Iowa in the Beachy Amish. Uh, I joined the military uh, once I got out of there. And I'm um, here today. I just heard about it and thought I'd join. Thank you. Are you ready, Deirdre? Yes. Hi, I'm Deirdre. I grew up outside of uh, Sisters, Oregon, in the Deschutes River Woods, um, Brethren, uh, Mennonite. Billy? Ah, Billy, you're muted. <laughs> Thanks for alerting me. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm Billy, and I, I grew up uh, both in Yoder and Montezuma, Kansas, with the Amish, Beachy Amish, and Church of God in Christ Mennonite, also known as the Holdemans. Stephanie? You're muted, too. <laughs> We're not technologically impaired, I swear, guys. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, my name is Stephanie Crable. I grew up in... North Newton, Kansas. I attended Bethel College Mennonite Church, which was part of the General Conference, um, which is now part of Mennonite Church USA. It no longer exists. So I am, of the five of us, I'm the one person who didn't grow up with a plain background. I grew up with a liberal or assimilated Mennonite background. That's interesting. Thank you all. So the first question that I have for each of you is like, what would you define pacifism as based on your previous community's affiliation with pacifism? Like for me, I would have defined it as like, oh, we're, we're not violent. We don't go to war. We don't commit acts of violence, blah, 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 blah. So what, with that being said, just go around and give me a short answer. AJ? Yeah, I would say that's the same uh, as well. I would say it was specifically used to keep themselves out of uh, out of the military, though. Deirdre? Yeah, I agree with what AJ is saying. Um, kind of like um, what we learned was passive was is just kind of how we're presented mostly when we when we did go out in the community which wasn't very often um and then also it was just kind of um to separate ourselves from war into the government what about you billy for us it was mostly avoiding the appearance like we were involved with the world and also i think recognizing violence as only physical and um, which is clearly not true 
but um, but generally our people would see them as, um, you know, for them, non-resistance equals not going to war and not suing somebody. And that's about where they would leave it. They don't really understand deeper. And Stephanie? Um, I would say I learned about passives, pacifism primarily as um, a reason for not going to war. Um, and also like uh, a, a sort of ideological orientation that we all learned um, in order to make us all politically opposed to war, you know, both, both like the, the way that the way that, I mean, specifically the United States engages in their foreign policy and also um, just resistance to, or being, you know, I sort of grew up with stories of conscientious objectors. So that's interesting. You bring up the stories of conscientious objectors because my stepfather was actually a, a conscientious objector and I saw like, and heard like his stories about that. So that's really interesting. Um, the other thing is, is I would have to say it's interesting how each one of you kind of like the, the plain communities, we, we use it to separate ourselves from the world. It's like a distinctive separation. And what happens when you separate yourselves? That creates a divide, a lack of humanity. And so typically the world itself, in my opinion, um, looks at uh, our groups of our flavors of Anabaptists, the plain varieties, looks at them as more of a, they're the peaceful, gentle people. They don't commit acts of violence. And so that's really harmful in my opinion yeah and and you might be getting to this but kind of what i was alluding to with uh using it as a as to get out of being in the military um i, I said that because they weren't actually non-violent they were only non-violent to other people looking in so right. a violence was okay as long as it was kept within the confines of the home yeah, and uh, I had the same experience yeah. as AJ yeah. does. Um, I was talking to Mary about that earlier, too. And I also, like, um, another part of, like, our passiveness is when um, Billy was mentioning, um, you know, like, not being able to sue and that sort of thing. We were never taught. I didn't even know, like, you, I didn't even know, like, how Ooh. to call anybody um if anything happened to me and i didn't know that there was even i didn't know anything about the legal court systems or how that worked that is very much something that's kept not is kept very much away from us mm -hmm. i would agree with that yeah yeah my last so i i had quit after eighth grade and when we moved out of kansas I was required in Colorado to go to the public high school and I tested in and they let me go in at 11th grade. But one of the classes that I had to take was civics and I failed miserably and it threatened my ability to graduate because I had no knowledge and I had to sit every day with that teacher and study to try to understand it because I had no idea. Yeah, that's pretty indicative of how the, the educational deprivation affects us. Because we don't yeah. have knowledge of how the, to begin knowing how the government even works. And so to kind of bring it back, like, Stephanie, did you have anything to add to this? Well, I mean, my experience was really, really different. I, you know, I think because there's no, there's no barrier to education um, and because I, <clears throat> in 
progressive Mennonite circles. I'm not, I'm kind of not sure what word to use because like within Mennonite Church USA, liberal Mennonites mean something completely different than it does to plain people, but I'm going to just kind of fall back on that. Um, with liberal Mennonites, like education in a lot of ways is really highly valued and liberal Mennonites have invested a lot in their own educational institutions. Um, you know, I mean, just for some perspective, like my, my dad's parents, for example, had eighth grade educations. Um, my dad has a PhD. Uh, most of my first cousins have master's degrees or PhDs. So I come from a family that's like very deeply invested in education and grew up in a church that was too. And so that influences the way that we talk about pacifism and nonviolence. But I would still say that pacifism and nonviolence is like a particular core value with, with a lot of hypocrisy built into it, for sure. It's just a little bit different. So the question that I have to ask you, Stephanie, specifically is, do you believe that people of your experiences in the Mennonite church, because we see this often where Mennonites, and, and so we refer to y'all as like assimilated Mennonites, we refer to y'all as like, y'all are liberal. We don't know if there's hope for y'all's souls, okay? Like, I'm just saying, we don't know. But do you think that they can accurately bridge the cultural gaps and bridge the language barriers to do accurate research or to write accurate research articles that would actually benefit Amish people and plain people? Well, I mean, yes and no. Like, yes, if you, if you, actually do research from a standpoint of like I my the people I'm researching are going to be my prime like <laughs> I'm going to listen to them I'm going to be attentive to the power dynamics within their communities I'm going to like make sure not to make things like like there's way there are ways to do good research and there are ways to do bad research but nobody who who grew up with the kind of Mennonite background that I have has any particular expertise on plain people or Amish people just by virtue of being fellow Anabaptists. Like, I didn't grow up with that knowledge. I grew up very close to, like, um, you know, physical proximity-wise, I grew up pretty close to, like, the, the same communities that Billy grew up in. So I knew, I knew who the Holdemans were. I didn't know anything about the churches. I didn't know anything about the Amish. I just knew that I was somehow connected to them, that some of my ancestors had been Amish. Um, that doesn't translate into the kind of indigenous knowledge that you need to be an insider researcher. Like you have to listen to the people on the inside. And I don't, I don't think that liberal Mennonites always get that because we can be, you know, I mean, I, I have a, a PhD and wrote about Mennonites for my research. So I've been to lots of academic conferences um, where people immediately want me to clarify the difference between my kind of Mennonites and other kinds of Mennonites, you know, because I was talking about Mennonite Church USA. And it's just like, I never found that question very easy to answer because I was like, I don't feel like I'm on the same planet as these folks most of the time. Um, since, you know, I mean, since then I've learned like some historical commonalities and some ideological commonalities. Like, it's not like there's no connection at all, but no. But it's like the connection is different. We it's don't different. have, like, it's not the similarity that I might feel with AJ or Deirdre or Billy or Hope Ann because we all were in a variety of um, 
plain communities. We dressed plain. We were separate from the world. We didn't, um, education wasn't necessarily valued. Um, in fact, the, the lack of education was kind of um, glorified, like educational deprivation is a real thing. Yeah. So, well, and it's it uh, the education deprivation is very purposeful. Mm-hmm. And I was and always I don't think I don't think outsiders know that the that the the education deprivation that happens, like they think it's just a lack of I don't know what they maybe think it is, but it's very intentional to keep people from learning the truth. Like I literally just learned that the earth like is not, you know, 6,000 years old. Like I just, I'm just now learning real science and that's crazy. How old are you? Absolutely crazy. 38. Oh, we're the same age. We're the same age. Ooh. You know, I I decided to go off to college, so I go to college. I'm in a biology class, and I'm like, "Holy smokes!" Oh. Like, it's not that I it's not that I actually like really believed that stuff, but I hadn't actually deconstructed it. And so here right. I am in a biology class, learning that a star exploded and the Earth is here. Like, that's that's pretty mind blowing. Yes. Uh, um. And so it's just been a whole, like the last two years have just been like, I've spent every spare minute of my day trying to figure life out because I all of a sudden realized that the entire, the entire bit of science that I thought I knew isn't actually science. And I don't understand how they get away with teaching it as science because it's not, it's bullshit. And I get really angry about the science piece. That's when when I started taking um, anatomy and physiology classes, and then I took some psychology classes. Like for me, like learning about science and scientific research and all of that, like it made me very, very angry. It's very anger-inducing because then we realize, like, part of what keeps our our people hostage and keeps our people from having personhood and bodily autonomy is actually, in fact, the educational deprivation. But with that being said, let's get we're a little bit off topic, so let's get back to pacifism. Welcome, Hoban. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us what community you came from and why you're here today. You're talking. We can't hear you. I, I mean, nobody said we were um, technologically savvy here. Try. Is that better? Now we can hear you. Yes. Okay. How's the volume? Magic. It's great. Perfect. Okay. Good. Um, so I'm Hope Ann Dueck, and I am the executive director of a nonprofit organization called A Better Way. A Better Way was founded to, guess what, educate people about topics surrounding um, abuse with a special focus on child abuse. And originally, we started out covering um, primarily child abuse topics and eventually continued to kind of expand our work into domestic violence as well because there's so much overlap there. 
I am passionate about education because I believe that the mess we see with domestic violence and child abuse of every sort in massive quantities in our playing communities is a result of among other things, a lack of, guess what, education. So I love to educate. And this topic today about non-resistance and pacifism is of special interest to me because as probably almost everybody in this chat knows, I have long asked the question, why are we being taught, why were we taught that we can't resist evil? And so if someone is harming our wife or our children, we just have to kneel down and pray because we can't resist evil. But then as soon as little Johnny, little toddler Johnny, does the age normal thing and snatches a toy from little, oh, I can't say Billy, um, little, <laughs> um, oh, goodness. Anyway, Roy, little Roy, he's, he snatches a toy from little Roy or Jacob. Um, all of a sudden, Daddy, who yesterday said he can't resist evil, and there's nothing he can do but pray when his wife or his daughters are being assaulted, he can grab little Johnny and wail the tar out of him and even maybe leave him covered in welts and bruises because suddenly he's able to resist evil. So that has never made sense to me. And that is part of the reason this topic that you suggested intrigues me and makes me, of course, want to participate. Thank you, Hope Ann. That's really important. And that's part of why I suggested this topic in the first place, because I can't reconcile the two. But we'll get into that in a little bit. Can you tell me, Hope Ann, what you, what you would define pacifism as? Um, I can tell you what we were told pacifism was. Okay. Pacifism was not godly. We were not pacifists. We were non-resistant. And it was those worldly, unbiblical people out there that were pacifists. <laughs> well, I guess we were worldly. Okay. Okay. We're, you we're nailed being, it. We're all being worldly. Thank you. So with that being said, I hope Anne's answered all of the questions. So now we're going to go back to the next question on my list is, did your young men register as conscientious objectors? Because ours did. Not only did they tell the stories, they showed like the, the cards that they would get when they were summoned to serve way back when, like they would keep those things as like proof that the church was being persecuted. And I feel like that whole narrative of being conscientious objectors to me, that feels like it kind of led into this mentality of like, we were persecuted severely for not believing in violence. What about you, AJ? Yes, uh, same thing. They definitely registered as conscientious objectors. Um, and, and, and yes, they did have an attitude of persecution, still do. Um, I think that they, they think that somehow the world is out to get them for their Christian beliefs. However, most of the world just wants to be free from their beliefs. Um, we could go on a whole nother spiel about the, the, uh, Supreme Court that's going to okay. run our country into the ground. But 
I'll leave that one. <laughs> That's a future topic. How about you, Deirdre? Um, so I don't think that that, that happened, but we, we very much were like, um, I, I remember being taught that, that we were very much, uh, you know, victimized, that we were very much oppressed by, by the outside world. Um, that was kind of, my community was pretty extreme. We lived off of like, like, I would say it, it would take a, like 10 miles off government roads in the middle of, of nowhere in, in the woods. And the reason that we lived there was, was because of being persecuted and not understood um, and also separating ourselves extremely. Um, and that way, uh, like outside eyes couldn't like have a view and knowledge of our community and they wouldn't be able to oppress us that way, I guess would be the best way to describe it. But I lived, I mean, we were, we were definitely like, if you didn't know, if we didn't tell you where we, our community was, there is no way that people would know. Can I ask a wow. question real quick, Deirdre? Yes. Uh, so I'm learning in queer history about Sisters Oregon. Did you guys have any like interactions with the people there that were in the, um, the groups that went to Sisters to like, get away from the government? Yeah, yes. Okay. Thank you. Hope Ann? So, um, <clears throat> yes, the community that I was in, definitely um, the young men did register for conscientious objector status. I, however, never was privy to any of their forefathers' cards. Um, I don't recall ever even seeing so much as a picture of that, which is kind of interesting, um, given the location where I grew up. Um, <clears throat> if there were such, I never saw it or even a picture of it. However, there was intense fear in both the teachings in the community and the writings in the publications where um, they were afraid of government infiltrating the church, um, you know, or that they might say or do something that then would be used against them if they were called before the um, board to testify. And so fear was constantly drummed into you. Um, it went so far that even the um, contractor mailman for the area who often came to pick up mail at the organization, um, people got terrified that he was some kind of a government plant and they would whisper and warn each other and, you know, that went on for years. And I remember even chuckling to myself about it because it seemed rather unlikely. And so, yeah, it was like, would I say I was influenced maybe a little bit, but at the same hand, just so much of it didn't ring true to me. I guess I was a little bit of a skeptic. I forgot our um, group kind of had some of that, too. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you. Um, Billy? Uh, so the Holdemans kind of take a different approach. They are all about 
you know, we're the one true church, so we need to look like it and we need to go out into the community and people need to see just how perfectly dressed we are and, you know, just how clean we are in our beautiful lawns and all of that. So it was kind of a different approach. I know that they have taken the government head on. So um, and at Heston, we had particular knowledge about the movements of of the of the church with the government regarding the draft board and schooling because not only being um, in central Kansas where the church headquarters is but the legal representative for Church of God in Christ Mennonite is one of our ministers from Heston congregation and so he would report back to us and let us know how their talks with the government went they went to um, they went to Washington DC I think it would be about two years ago now and they had a specific meeting and they come back and it's just such, it's like a propaganda meeting. We all show up for this special meeting at church and they tell us about how the government officials cried when they saw and heard the testimonies of our members and just how thankful they were for our schools. And it was just kind of like communism where they go and put out this front for the other governments to see. And then everyone in the background is just like, how come you believe this? And um, certain bad actors, I would call them from assimilated Mennonite circles, have gone on and further pushed that in such a way that, yeah, the government believes that and the government interacts with the church officials and believes this is really how wonderful things are. And they see how profitable their businesses are for the community. And they think, oh, well, you know, they're great law abiding citizens, which is not true. So, Billy, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you feel like when this happens that this is the most powerful people in the community are um, being the mouthpieces and the portrayal of the entire community? Yes. And does that so, give space for the marginalized people in your community? No, and they specifically pick people who have positions of power to represent the church. So certain families and certain wealthy um, wealthy persons and people who they feel have the best um, appearance of, of a proper church member. So it, at our congregation specifically, they sent out a notice that they were going to be reviewing people who they felt like were the most compliant. So they keep record of discipline and all of those things. And they picked the people who had the least amount of discipline, who seemed to, you know, the people who had the most money, who looked the most upkeep. Um, of course, people who have more money, they are better easy and able to keep up the nicest looking clothes because um, for us, especially for the women, having the nicest looking dresses was very important. Um, having people who chose to have their head covering folded rather than sewn like they started allowing in 2015. Um, so all of these different things are status symbols and they pick the people with the best status to go and represent the church. Um, and, you know, there's different things in the media that I viewed lately that um, that I was just like, wow, you know, this isn't you know, this isn't accidental. It's very sophisticated. And as I started to challenge others when I got into leadership, um, I really learned just how much they do know what they're doing. And it's really not about or adorning the doctrines. So that, thank you for that. And, and so did they, did your young men, like, did you register as a conscientious objector though? So for myself, I did and others did. So there is 
I don't exactly know how, how this works because after they met with the church, we didn't do that anymore. So they met with the church and kind of gave a blanket covering for the church and provided a statement to Church of God and Christ Mennonite saying that they recognized us because we demonstrated. Um, so like for the time being, the church is recognized and often in the church propaganda materials and from the pulpit and during discipline meetings, often what they would tell us is people not complying with church doctrine are a shame on the church and they are, um, forget the exact word they would use, but they would say that when we, when we misrepresent God's true church in the face of the government, we threaten our ability to have that privilege. And so those who, you know, they would use that, especially with, with youth boys as, as one of the charges for reasons they excommunicated them. So that way, once they were no longer a member in good standing, that would also strip them of their status as a conscientious objector. So if you, if you, if you, as the church requires, instead of signing yourself as a CO, but you are in with the church, they also control whether the government. So the government basically has given this church control to say whether they get to claim that uh, CO status with, with them. Uh, do you know if that went to court, like the Supreme Court? I've been uh, learning a bunch about some stuff that's been happening in the Supreme Court. I wonder if that was one of the things. I'm not sure because when it was all happening, I was a very good, obedient church member. I just thought, oh, this is wonderful. And I didn't pay attention. And now I'm just starting to process this. And as far as what happened with that, I don't know. I know that there is an online archive, but they have taken away my credentials to access it. So I don't have access to the documents the church has anymore. Okay. Thank I... you, Billy. That is just horrific for a church to have that ultimate power and control and use that to control members to comply with their doctrine. That is awful, especially it's, it's just so controlling. Um, I think that in the future, that could be something that we can research and we can find out more about. And maybe that could help you in your quest to bring more awareness to those issues. So with that being said, Stephanie, um, did your young men get registered as conscientious objectors? I mean, yeah, but it was individual decisions. The church, like in, in, um, Mennonite Church USA communities, that's not like, they're, they're not that kind of sort of totalitarian control within the community. Like, it's just completely different. We don't have that. It's not to say that we don't have like hints of it. <laughs> but, but with that said, I mean, pacifism was like a major tenet of being Mennonite that I grew up with. Um, you know, my, my grandfathers were conscientious objectors. My dad was a conscientious objector. Um, you know, I think probably most of the young men in, in my church <laughs> registered that way. Um, there was a lot of, I, I would say that one of the ways that um, pacifist values really manifest um, among liberal Mennonites is through a, like an emphasis on peacemaking programs, like what Billy just held up, the, like compassionate peacemaking, like that, that's, that's very on brand. Um, so 
I was also like this, this is actually as y'all were talking, this is where I, I think I feel the most commonality with everyone, even though it wasn't as tightly controlled because we were absolutely given a persecution narrative. Like the, you know, and we learned about the martyr's mirror in this context, which is that oh, you, know, yeah. you, would, you will be tested. If you are tested, like, are you willing to die for your beliefs in nonviolence? Like, are you willing, you know, the whole image of, of Durf Willems tur turning around and pulling his, his um, pursuer out of, out of the water um, you know, I, I don't know how many people I <laughs> grew up around who have like that woodcut on their wall. So the idea of being being a peacemaking pacifist is a really, really big. I mean, it's a really big deal. And I I mean, just to add like my personal experience to it, I have a lot of resentment about it um, because I think it's a really masculine discourse. <laughs> um, it is it. It's a it's about it's about creating a masculinity for men who don't want to go to war in a lot of ways. It is. But when I say that, I don't in any way want to denigrate the experience of like like my my parents generation or my grandparents generation or any like anybody who's had to make that difficult decision about whether to like leave everything they believe in or join the military and go, you know, possibly kill people abroad. Like there I have a lot of. I, I feel in a lot of ways, I feel grateful to have grown up in a community where I grew up with the critique of war and the U.S. military. Um, you know, I grew up in the 1980s when the United States was doing all kinds of covert shit abroad. And most of the people I grew up around were coming from evangelical Christian backgrounds and didn't know a thing about it. But I did because I was being raised by, you know, really conscientious pacifists. Now, that's not to say that they didn't have a very, like, that there's <laughs> there's nothing colonialist or patronizing or, like, grossly missional about the way that liberal Mennonites interact abroad. <laughs> there is. There absolutely is. It's just, um, you know, my personal relationship with, with pacifism growing up is a real mixed bag. I've got some really positive associations and some really negative ones, too. Thank you, Stephanie. That's a very in-depth viewpoint of Hope Ann, did you have something to say? I was just going to say that the other thing that strikes me listening to Stephanie is the setting that I grew up in, even though there was the huge emphasis on non-resistance, I don't think that there was much concern about justice and um what some people would term social justice issues and i think that would be also a dividing factor between the pacifism that stephanie grew up with and the non-resistance that i grew up with um mm -hmm. in the setting i grew up in there was much more of an attitude of well i pulled myself up by my bootstraps and if you're poor and living in the slums of wherever uh, get yourself pulled together and that's your problem. It isn't really mine. And they may deny that, but it was there. It was definitely there. And I don't think there was in general much awareness or concern about things like racism and that type of thing. Mm -mm. 
I would echo what Hope Ann said, like that we didn't have much concern about social justice issues for the most part in most of the communities that I lived in. Um, Definitely the opposite. Oh, you had a lot of concern about social justice. No, no. It was the opposite of concern. Uh, they oh, would not yeah. believe that any of that is even a thing. Um, yeah. So one thing I do wanna, would, I'm sorry. It's okay. One thing that I do want to add that kind of came to my thought is um, I know like growing up and it was like told to us, like we were very separated from the government, but if ever like government tried to take control, like we were very prepared. I know that we had like, like access and had a, a, a lawyer that would have to help us at, at any point. Um, and then we believed, we also were aware that there was power in, in money um, and money was very much like, um, like uh, we were there in, especially in my family, we were very frugal. And I remember my dad like talking about like how like money can get us out of situations and it could be like our way of resistance. Like you can basically buy anybody off and the government can leave you alone. Like I was very much taught that. I don't know if, if other communities were and if that's just separate from mine, but, but we definitely were prepared if government was going to try to take control. Thank you for sharing that. That's, um, I, I don't know. We, we were kind of taught like more along the lines of like, are you prepared to die for your conscientious objector status over the, yeah. Yeah, same with us. And we definitely didn't have any money. So we weren't going to buy our way out of anything, not even a wet brown paper bag. <laughs> and we were always caught, like if we were ever questioned about things we were always taught like what to say yes same um we almost it was almost like a script that people were starting to question things and to ask about things um we don't know if they're just like a common citizen if it's like the government or someone trying to to get in their grasp of our community and we were always taught like how to respond to that and not only that but we were all also taught we were, I was taught that, like, you know, the government just wants to take your kids and take your land and take your things, right? Like, the government just wants to come take things. So, we don't, we don't even correct people when they have misinformation about us because, yeah, that's just too worldly and the world doesn't need to know what happens inside of our communities. So, we're, we're kind of off topic a little bit. So, let me go back to, it's interesting how all of this comes up, though. But let's go back to like where we were talking about pacifism. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up in this discussion is because in some ways pacifism ties in to like, do these communities vote and do they participate in, in being elected officials? So here's a fun fact about Amish communities in, in specific. There's a large variety and flavor of Amish community. Obviously, I was Ape Troyer Amish, and I lived in four other Old Order Amish communities. AJ, however, was Beachy Amish. That's, that's a vastly different from any of the five communities that I lived in. But let me tell you about that inside of each of those communities. So community number one, I they did not vote. Community number two, they did not vote. Community number three, back in the 1990s, they went by the 15 passenger van loads to go vote. 
old order Amish voters in the 1990s. And prior to that, back before like Wisconsin versus Yoder, the conscientious objectors, whatever, Amish people, back before the industrial revolution, Amish people used to hold like school board positions. Did y'all know that? So with that being said, if we can just go around and talk about, because like the last two communities I lived in, we did not vote again. So with that being said, would y'all go around and tell me if your community voted and did they participate in elections at all? So my community did not uh, as, a, as a whole. Uh, what I have been finding out in the past about 10 years, though, is that some of them have been sneaking off to vote. Um, so there has been some some voting, but it's all done undercover. So covert, nobody, covert, yeah, covert voting. Nobody, nobody knows about it. So, wow, thank you. And, and did they... go ahead. Right, I was, I forgot that one. And no, they did not participate. We had our own uh, little school, and so they didn't participate in uh, any sort of. Uh, positions in the government um, at all. Okay. Thank you. And Deirdre? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, yeah. And we definitely didn't hold any positions anywhere that we were very separate from everything. Um, I'm just like, it's just crazy. Like I'm seeing the difference um, in my community with everybody else's. I'm almost feeling like kind of weird, <laughs> I guess. Um but yeah, absolutely not. And I and they knew sort of about voting. Um, I didn't know a lot of information, but this is like crazy. When I I did not know when I got like out of my community in the English world, I was totally astonished when I found out that women vote. I didn't know like that was a thing. I didn't know that that was like that blew my mind. Yeah, Respect I didn't either. That. For the Respect record. Back to that education thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How, can, how, how, how could you know without being taught that? That's, that's the thing that makes me so angry about the education system. How could you know? There's no way for you to know. And you so, don't have access to the information on your own. Right. No access. Were, you, everything is controlled. Were, like the books we read, everything. Are you kidding me? Like once right. once a year we would go to the library, maybe, like if my mom decided to, my dad allowed her. And it was like, I'm telling you, like it was very controlled. And half the time when we come home with books, like half the books would be put in the bag by the door. We were not allowed to read that. Yeah. Yeah. And don't feel weird about that. Like that that's the part that that's the reason we're all here is because we're angry about that. I mean, that's why I'm here. I am. I, I There are so many things like, and that's the thing too, is, is now even like being in the English world, as long as I have been and all of that stuff, I, I cannot, I still, there's so many things that I'm so naive to. And there's so many things. And I don't feel like I'm ever going to fit in. I'm never going to fit in with the outside world. It sucks. I'm just not. 
That's entirely too relatable for me, Deirdre. I mean, I experience that on a regular basis where I just don't feel like I will ever no amount of information that I have because of the societal deficits and because of the educational deprivation is ever going to make it to where I can catch up to my peers and where they are in terms of societal knowledge, in terms of civic knowledge, in terms of other knowledge. Like I know a lot of things. I've learned a lot of things, but just in general, the in general overall effect is like, I will never catch up. Yeah. I spend, I just spend my time nodding and smiling most of the time. Especially uh, when though, it comes to politics. I don't think I'm ever going to understand. Um, I didn't know what, like when I get into the English world, I didn't know what a Congress was. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I still, um, you know, you learn that stuff, I guess, apparently you learn, you start learning that stuff when you're kids and you're just like around it. And I still, well, I still can't fathom how the, how politics and the judicial system work. Like I cannot grasp it and I don't think I ever will. And I've read a bunch of books and it's so foreign to me. It makes yeah, complete I don't, sense. I don't have any, like I still, I feel like I have a very basic idea, but as I, like now I don't have a filter on my phone and so I can view election information and I feel like I gain a little more each time, but I still, I don't really know what's happening. And even if I were to vote, like I, I wouldn't know what that would, what it entails. Like I still don't really know. <laughs> and I feel like it's important to confess that because I don't feel like it's something I need to be ashamed of. The shame is no. on the assholes who withheld information from me. Right. You you got that. You hit that nail on the head. This is not your fault, Billy. It is not your fault. When you are deprived of information and information is controlled as power and used to manipulate people, it is not your fault that you do not have access to that information. And I'm here to tell all of you that. And if you're listening know that if you do not have access to information or did not have access to information, it is not your fault. Hopan, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, Deidre and I evidently share a commonality in that, um, God forbid you ever vote or hold office. And in fact, um, if you would have got caught even trying to do either of those things, it almost certainly would have been an excommunicatable offense. You would and, be putting our community in jeopardy. And yep. in some areas, if you would have even registered to vote, you would have got outed because if you register to vote, then you are on the list for jury duty and you didn't ever serve on a jury either. That was also an excommunicatable offense. And if you want to know just a little side tidbit that has nothing directly to do with that, in the community I grew up in as a child, at the time, had you even been hauled into court for any reason, you were not allowed to have a lawyer represent you in court. It was literally forbidden by the church. So. You, you don't know, need a lawyer. I, I just have to say, Sister Hope, let me let me just go here. 
just for a hot minute. I mean, we were the old order Amish, okay? And y'all were those liberal Mennonites out there. <laughs> We've had this discussion, Sister we, Mary. <laughs> we, we did not serve on juries either, okay? We did not do that. And I don't believe anybody ever registered to vote, except for the community that voted. And before, like, you know, Wisconsin versus Yoder, the Industrial Revolution, where we got our own schools, all of those things. Now, to digress slightly, the Mennonite community that I eventually ended up in, some people in that community did vote for local elections. Now, they seem to draw the line at that for whatever reason. I'm not entirely sure what their thinking was, why it was okay to vote for local elections, but not, you know, broader than that. But hey, you know, that's how they did their thing. And there was a lot about that community I never did understand completely before I exited it. But it was a very different community than the community I grew up in. As you and I have discussed, the community I grew up in would have been considered hardcore by many Amish, even though we had electricity and drove vehicles. Right. But y'all were still so much more liberal, Hope Anne. <laughs> Dream I'm, I'm, on. Dream on. I'm just saying, don't, don't. Don't take away your liberalism because, you know, y'all were those Mennonites. All right. With that being said, Billy, what about you? Did your previous community participate in voting jury duty or in being elected officials? No. And if we ever had a summons, we were to immediately, we had to contact the church staff. They had a special certain like cards.card we were supposed to send in and particularly for our people working for the church institutions like our healthcare facilities, central office, um, clothing center, all of those things, um, you know, the church would go and if they couldn't get out of something, the church would go and represent them. Um, Or sometimes depending on the nature of it, the church would hire an attorney, but you couldn't speak when you were in court. Those things don't happen much because they do a very good job of keeping everything hush-hush. But, yeah, regarding the voting, when I lived at Montezuma at Homeland, and I was pretty young then, but I remember there was a woman who got caught voting, I think, at Dodge City. And they hauled her up in front of church, and we basically just kind of... um, you know, verbally stoned her, you know, everyone just kind of was, they say like, does anyone have questions? But basically people just tell them how terrible they are. And then she was expelled and she, you know, we sent her out and then we just did the usual thing where we sing warning and judgment songs until they finally stop. Um, But she had just simply wanted to vote. I don't even think it was a matter of like, she really wanted to, to, to make a difference by her vote, but so much that she just wanted to get away with it. Um, because she, I think she had somehow become aware or somebody at a, like, you know how they try to almost recruit people to vote. Um, she had stopped and just kind of gave them an ear, which we aren't supposed to do. We're supposed to, and I, I was amazed even here. I work for a liberal Mennonite college. I work for Goshen college and they host people here to register to vote. And when they were here outside my office, I just robotically said, I'm, I didn't even look at them. I just said, I'm sorry, I don't believe in voting. And I kept walking. And then I was just like, wow, it was so automatic for me. I'm, and and in, a, in a part of me, I don't still. And I, I'm, 
mostly because I don't believe in making uninformed choices because I think the problem we have is we have too many idiots voting who don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, I think just in general, I don't think that it's just our people that don't have an idea. I think there's just a lot of misinformation and that's not accidental either. No. Thank you, Billy. That's a very interesting view of like how like your community is so distinct, but so obviously so controlling like there's still a high control group in how they handle it but with that being said let's hear from stephanie did your community participate in voting jury duty or elected officials yeah oh yeah all of it i mean including elected officials oh Um, my not i mean not as like i don't have like any yeah, no, I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm going through my head. Like, how many nice do I know from my home church who have been elected officials? Plenty. Um, it's, I, I'm not, like, there are a lot of different ways I could get at this. I mean, I could talk about, like, Mennonite Church USA and sort of the history with that. But, like, I would say it's, it's voting is not stigmatized. Um, if anything, not vote, like, in the community where I grew up, if anything, not voting is stigmatized. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all were so worldly. <laughs> I know, so worldly. I, mean, I was so committed to voting that um, my first presidential election was the first time Clinton ran. Um, and I was an exchange student in France at the time. And even though it was a big deal to register for an absentee ballot, I did. Like, I voted absentee from Europe for my first you know, my first presidential election and got interviewed on French television about why I voted for Bill Clinton. I mean, like, I... This blows my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And you want to know what's funny? When I talk about the Amish community that voted, this was for that election. It was that election. (laughs) (laughs) They voted against... um, They voted for whoever his um, contender was, like... Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Like so this like just brief to briefly talk about Mennonite Church USA. Like, you know, I grew up in General Conference Mennonite Church, which is sort was a binational denomination. So it spanned the U.S. and Canada. And I like one of I think one of the big differences between that and a lot of the like the older plain Anabaptist communities is like like, you know, I mean, my ancestors immigrated about a hundred years before I was born, you know, it like, it's the time in the United States is fresher. And um, I think the memories of war are more fresh as well, because it was generally war that, that drove people, you know, war or, you know, just (laughs) the opportunity to be colonizers under the Homesteaders Act. Um, But it was so interesting to me. I grew up in a hardcore Democrat family. I mean, my even my all four of my grandparents were Democratic voters, which is really something in South Central rural Kansas. Um, and I associated, um, I associated the Democratic Party. <laughs> this is just the way I grew. I, I associated the Democratic Party with the same kind of values that I was raised with. You know, with some like, oh, we wish, you know, we wish they wouldn't spend so much on the military. But um, 
what I didn't even realize was that like over in the, like the old Mennonite church that became like sort of the Eastern wing of Mennonite church USA, like people were much more politically conservative and were supporting like Jerry Falwell's moral majority and, and like, like hardcore Republican. And so one of the things that happened when those two denominations started merging in the early 2000s is like, there was like, everything that was considered a popular political issue became a battleground. I mean, the, the biggest one became like just the lives and bodies of LGBT people. Um, but it was like the, the idea of being apolitical, like, yeah, there's an awareness, like there's always some conservative in your church who, or some, some person who romanticizes plain people or who came from a plain community who doesn't believe in voting. And everyone's like, yeah, so-and-so doesn't believe in voting. But um, I did not grow up with, I, I grew up with the knowledge that a lot of Mennonites didn't vote, but that our kind of Mennonites definitely vote and that it's physically irresponsible not to. Like that's what I grew up with. Oh my God. Like it is your, almost like it is your civic duty. Yes, absolutely. Like that's it is not an option. You don't get to opt out. Like if you're a responsible a responsible, productive member of society, part of that duty to be a responsible, productive member of society entails you being obligated to vote. I don't I don't want people to get the impression that everyone in Mennonite Church USA is like that because it's a pretty like it's it's a mainline denomination. So it's people are all over the place. But that is how I grew up in South Carolina. And it's really important for people to understand there's also various branches of Mennonite Church USA, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's, it, I mean, it, for a small denomination, this is sort of hilarious, but it is a big tent denomination and is just beset by constant infighting, but whatever. <laughs> it, is, it is what it is. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Stephanie. I had I had often heard that uh, the the more liberal Mennonites, like if or uh, like if they did vote, that it was often uh, more towards the Democrat or the more liberal side. So I guess anecdotally, that sounds probably about right. I mean, I I would hesitate to even go in that to even generalize right. that much because um, there are an awful lot of Mennonites who are Republicans. Um, right. Well, if you wanted to generalize, you could say people who come from historically general conference background might in some ways be more likely to be Democrat. Um, but, you know, it really it really just kind of depends. I um, think uh, I think that that was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. That's mm -hmm. whoever was talking to me about this was talking that way. Mm -hmm. I would say. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious to see what it would look like now because I yeah. don't feel like it would be uh, liberal voting. I feel like I mean, it would definitely be red hat voting. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're in like, I mean, if you look at like some of the places where Mennonites are concentrated, um, where MCUSA Mennonites are concentrated, which is still, you know, kind of the same places that plain Mennonites are concentrated to a large degree, but like, I mean, I'm sure like in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania, <laughs> like in that whole area, like um, Mennonites in general are a very conservative force. Um, I think they're a pretty conservative force 
uh, everywhere that there isn't an educational institution that everyone is that you know everyone is sort of invested in like that that i think is probably what was the mitigating factor in my upbringing is that i grew up two blocks away from bethel college um that i think i would guess that there's similar comparisons if you're like at eastern mennonite university or at goshen that they're more likely to be politically liberal people around those areas which is the way that education tends to work in the united states in general yeah i would say and uh i mean actually there's been studies on that but the more the more educated a person gets the more liberal they become um there's definitely a positive correlation there i was wondering if billy saw that around his uh, he said he worked at a goshen yeah yeah i work at goshen and i can i can say that's true to a point heston college is right down the road from bethel college and a large portion of their their administrators not so much their faculty but their administrators definitely are very clear they're republican and they raise quite a bit of stink because when i was a student there and when i worked there that was quite a problem i remember being absolutely terrified when i went to bethel college for a variety of reasons but part of that was like the their seeming apostasy and rejection of true doctrine um, something interesting that I want to note because it just happened to come in on on this Holdeman group, and I remember this being read to us. So when we were nearing the election when Trump was going to be, there was a lot of Holdeman people that seemed to be for Trump, and the church had a hard time squelching that because the church does not want people to have an opinion, and if they do, they need to keep their mouth quiet. And so I remember him, this particular minister, stood in front of our congregation, we had a, I think it was a special meeting for this. And he said, you know, Holdeman people do not vote Republican. And in their view, they believed most every Mennonite in the area would have voted Republican because they are so naive. But he read, and I'll read only just like a short part of it. He basically just kind of turned towards the Bible Doctrine and Practice book. And the, the subheading is the church's government. And he says, the church is governed by proving the will of God through the word and by the spirit. And following that direction, she is not a democracy governed by majority of opinion. And he specifically talked about how democracy is not, is not the way to enforce the will of God. And he pointed that out. And in some, there are certain aspects of that that I agree with even now, but but the way in which it was used is just a tactic to mitigate people from having a voice, even if it wouldn't matter in the outside the church, even inside the church, they didn't want people to have an opinion. Um, and, and people who had opinions were not happy when me uh, came around our healthcare facility saying, you know, to people, if I overhear them, you know, my job was to say, is that the voice of the church? And to basically just try to let them know, like, hey, I'm going to be talking to your minister about what you've what you've said here. Right. Because especially because we had worldly people working in our facilities and they could hear your opinion. And what would they think of the church? And so, yeah, it's interesting how these things go like they all interweave and we're all on top of each other in South Central Kansas there. Um, and now being here in Indiana, it's so nice to be here where there's everyone else and only one Holdeman congregation. <laughs> Boy, if you think that's nice, you should try Portland, Oregon. <laughs> I should better at. Oh my goodness! Please come. We need 
You know, I actually, I drive Uber and Lyft, and I actually met one person who was a an ex-Beachy Amish person who escaped <gasps> because she was LGBTQ. So, AJ, are you, like, on, are you, like, on our side of Washington, then? I am in Vancouver. Okay, so you're in Portland. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in, uh, yes. I mean, we call it Van Tucky, though. Um, <laughs> Van Tucky? Oh, boy. So, thank you all for that. That's a really interesting twist um, that came out with having asked that question. But I think it's also really critical to have that conversation and to discuss that kind of belief and how it affects you. Like, it, it really is important to discuss that. So thank you. Um, the next question that I had was, did your church use language such as non-resistant? And in one to three minutes, please answer this question, right? Um, non-resistant, non-violent, conscientious objectors, or other similar terms. If yes, what words and terms, and how do you think that defined the group to the secular world versus how they actually conduct themselves? Uh, yes, they used all of those words. Um, however, kind of like I said before, the term conscientious objector and nonviolent, uh, they would have said that they weren't pacifists. That was something that was more, uh, you know, for the, the world used pacifism. We didn't. We were conscientious, conscientious objectors. Um, however, that was, again, like I said earlier, that was only for people outside of the home. Uh, violence was allowed. In, in fact, it was encouraged uh, inside the family. So where they couldn't, you know, if somebody slapped them on the cheek outside the home, they would turn the other cheek. But inside the home, any bit of anything that made them angry it was straight to violence. There was no, there was no nonviolence in the home. It was all, it, it literally everything was violence. They truly believed spare the rod and spoil the child. Um, that was key to their beliefs. Was it and preached? So, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, so yeah. it was communal violence, not just Absolutely. in the home. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I should, I should, uh, of specified that like in fact they there was places in the church where they could take the kids to beat them um i remember as a kid i got snatched out of a chair by the sunday school teacher and like he tried to beat me but i like dodged the 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 things and he got so angry and he just picked me up by my shirt and slammed me into a chair and everybody else thought it was funny I mean, I didn't think it was funny. So they laughed but, at your pain. Yeah, they thought it was funny because I like dodged the hit and it made him so angry he slammed me into a chair. But it is like violence is taught. It is taught at these institutions and it's encouraged and it's it's just disgusting. And it's prevalent. Thank and you for very sharing prevalent. that. Thank you for sharing that, AJ. Can I ask one more question of you? Absolutely. Did your congregation teach in the breaking of the will of the child in the high chair? Uh, yes, I have watched that with my nieces and nephews. It's horrible, but thank you. 
Um, what about you, Deirdre? Um, so they- I, yeah, very very similar to to AJ's story. Um, we were to to contact ourselves in that way um, outside um, of like when we did go um, outside of our community and that sort of thing. Um, uh, but definitely within our community, that was that was not taught at all. We were definitely, uh, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child mentality. Um, and then we also they used uh, physical exhaustion as a form of discipline with children. Um, I remember, you know, acting up in um, church and that sort of thing and being having to to go outside and run around the building the whole entire time. Um, and my pace was uh was monitored um, until the until it was over, and so we're talking about like an hour of running, um, and then you know digging holes and that sort of thing. And then also we were very much um, we had a a, a a a a belt like a leather strap that was um, hung up in our house, um, and then so if we were to get a physical discipline, we were not only going to get that we would um have to go grab it um for our father um and then they would um actually hit us behind the knees because that was more painful thank you Deirdre that's awful and did you say did I miss it or did you say whether or not your church taught in breaking the will of the child in the high chair yeah so so breaking the will not just in that but like uh I remember like you basically you'll start spanking your child at like six months like babies were spanked um uh and i i uh yeah i now looking back and it's so disgusting but that was just like so normal to me i guess then but yeah um you know uh when when they started demonstrating the ability to throw fits or not liking you know what was going on they would definitely they would spank spank babies thank you deirdre that sounds like very similar to my Amish communities as well. Um, Hope Ann, did your church, obviously they use conscientious objector, um, use those words? Can you tell us if they used um, nonviolent, non-resistant, or other similar terms? And how do you think that they find the group to the secular world versus how they actually conduct themselves? Oh, yes. I mean, like I said, everything was about we're conscientious objectors, we're nonviolent, we're peace loving. um, We don't go to war, we don't harm others, we don't shoot, we don't kill. It all sounded good and well until, like AJ said, you start to realize that um, violence inside the community was accepted, taught, encouraged. you know, school, church, home, you could hear the kids being taken out and being beat and screaming. And, you know, there was a paddle and switches at the school and um, families who crossed even maybe what some of the leading figures in the church would have thought was unacceptable for child discipline, um, nothing was typically ever really done. It was just like this open, dirty secret. Um, I remember well the day that one of my classmates in our third through eighth grade classroom, who was in seventh grade at the time, came to school and 
had a toileting accident during the day, which he was utterly humiliated about and, you know, of course, had to try to clean up. And I later found out that he had been viciously and severely beaten the night before um, by one of his parents. Did the church do anything? No. That's awful. And so um, violence was enacted on a regular basis against children, Um, you know, and it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, that family's got dysfunction. They've got trouble. Yeah, they're a little harsh on their children. But it wasn't like anybody really stood up and said, no, it was very much just well, you know, suffer for the sake of Christ. Um, you know, let the grace of God help you. Nobody seemed to consider the fact that the men who were doing this and whatever the wives were involved in, but typically it seemed to largely be the men, um, they were allowed to continue as members in good standing in the church. How come they never were supposed to apply the grace of God to have more patience and gentleness with their children? Um, it just, you know, the burden was put on the children. And even when the teenagers would go to their Mennonite run Bible school, which was not like accredited or anything like that, but they would have like men in good standing come in and teach classes for like three weeks at a time. And the teenagers, once you were 16, you could go away for three weeks and take, you know, whatever classes they taught you. Um, I know many, many times there were teenagers who went to their teachers who were typically ministry from other communities but often from within the same denomination and they would tell these stories of abuse and horror in their home and the ministers would be sometimes very very compassionate and you know express much empathy and sympathy but it was like nothing ever stopped nobody did anything generally to the men or if they did, it was, you know, so minimal that nothing really changed for the children. And I just cannot reconcile that. I can't reconcile that today with the alleged concepts of non-resistance. To me, you've lost your right to say that you're peaceful and non-violent when you are willing to harm to the point of bruises and physical damage, children, you are not nonviolent if that's what you're doing. So what? I want to add to also in, in my community, and I guess it just always depends on the, on the household, but um, it wasn't just the children that would be disciplined. Um, the wives would also receive discipline. I don't know if that happened within your guys' community, but it happened um, in mine. I remember one time I, my mom did something um, and she had to stay in the room for like um, two two days and um, we brought her food and stuff, but we weren't allowed to talk to her or anything. Um, and that was a discipline that my father gave her. So it wasn't just the children that were disciplined. Yes, I am yeah. aware not so much in the actual community I grew up in, but in similar communities where church leadership will even um, advise husbands to 
spank beat their wives and i have accounts of that that was done even to abuse victims who were severely traumatized and it has basically shut them down to the point that they're almost non-functional it's horrible it's horrific and i have no use for that either but you know because she shut up and became quiet and compliant why then hey they think it worked and it's justified so, yeah. Ben, did the church also teach the breaking of the will of the child? Oh, my goodness, yes. And depending on the family, they would start swatting and hitting and spanking their little babies from even three months or younger. For just normal little baby things, like when you take their wet diaper off and they kick their legs and stretch and kind of roll around. Well, like I tell people, you try wearing a wad between your legs that's comparable size-wise, scale-wise to what a baby wears, especially if you're wearing cloth diapers on them, which many people did. You try wearing that. You try having it dirty and wet and hot and messy. And then see if you don't feel like doing a little kicking and stretching when that wad comes out from between your legs. You'd be kicking and stretching too. But, you know, they just think, well, the baby should know to hold still. And if he doesn't, well, then I'm just going to swat him. I mean, it's terrible. It, it all goes back to the lack of education of what is even normal, healthy childhood development. And they are spanking children for things that are normal, healthy childhood development that even they as adults would do were they in a similar situation. And yes, sorry, I get really angry about this because it causes so much harm. You don't have to apologize. Me too. I, I cannot... I, I can hardly wrap my brain around the fact that we are in 2022. Right? And these people are still doing this harmful stuff to people. Like, how, when is this going to stop? Like, we just com continue perpetuating this violence against people who, like, with all intents and purposes, are normal human beings. It, they would be normal human beings, but we are just going to beat them until they just like, I, I, I just don't understand. And I don't like they're right. DHS should be after them. They're right. They should, oh, they be. should be. They should be. They should be. They, they should DHS. have their heads taken away. DHS looked at our community. We, there would be, um, so if you weren't able to, like, if you were having problems having children and stuff like that, it was encouraged to, like, adopt. Um, and there was, like, a couple communities that would um, get a child from DHS um, that was, you know, not going to go back um, to adopt. And DHS looked at, at our community as a very wholesome, great place to put a child. Like, that was going to be phenomenal if they got adopted in their community. Um, I'm serious about that. Um, and... Yeah. And then I remember, I mean, when they would come in, like, and, and they wouldn't even like look our community over, they would just hand the child and that would be it. Like they didn't think that they needed to look around or talk to anybody. They just really felt like this was just a wonderful opportunity for this child, like 
to, to be in this community, to be adopted and how wonderful we were for accepting this child. Um, that's how it was viewed. And like I said, it happened a lot. If you had problems bearing children, you had a responsibility to obtain children another way. Yes. And, and that is something that I think that the whistle needs to be blown on this because like I, I talked to hundreds and thousands of people and they all think everybody thinks that this community that is represented here is this, this calm, you know, wonderful community. And when they learn about the violence, they're like, I can't even, I, I, I can't even wrap my brain around that. Right. Right. Exactly. And they don't want DHS and the government to even know. And further, there's some specific people that actually there was recently a research article published in the journal for child. What is it? Child welfare journal. Is that what it's called, Stephanie? That is inviting Amish and plain Mennonites to foster children. I am telling you, go Google it. Google it. Yeah. It is horrific. It is part of the problem. No, no, this, no. We have asked this first author of this research to stop researching Amish and plain people. And she st hasn't published anything about sexual abuse, rape, sexual violence. But now she's publishing this article. She just published this article. We ask her to stop. We did not ask for a disclaimer. We did not ask for her to sit there and gaslight us. We did not ask for her to sit there and minimize the actual accounts of abuse that were reported to her by Amish parents that they were facilitating on foster children. We did not ask her to gloss over that. We did not Dr. ask Dr. Jeanette Harder? Dr. Jeanette yes. Harder. I, and guess where Jeanette Harder works? Anyone oh gosh, I don't know if I even want to know the Rod and Staff. No, she works, <laughs> she works at Goshen College with me. AJ, they would never let her in the door at Rod and Staff, even though her, uh, even though her philosophies would Fits align right with Rod and Staff better than what they should align with Goshen. Yeah, so she is actually yeah. on campus right now with me at this college and I know because she tried to run me over with her car. So I, any chance oh, I have to know where her car is, I keep an eye on it. And oh my God. This lady yeah. sounds terrible. I don't know who she is, but she sounds terrible. Go well, look up, I, go look up her, her work. Her work. I have some emails to send. Her work speaks for itself. Her what is really her, works. what is her like, Thing she has a PhD the... in social work services and it has a okay. fascination and obsession and love for romanticizing Amish and plain people and then further elevating the voices of the most privileged and powerful within our communities she... and completely yes. silencing and erasing those of us who have more to contribute and those of us who were marginalized within the communities. And when we actually asked her publicly to not do this, she blocked us. Yes. Hashtag she, if, blocked by Dr. Harder. If she is a social worker who does research and she is perpetuating this, she is, she is, I, I don't even know. Yeah. Join so the outrage. Wrong. Join so the outrage. Wrong. Join the outrage, AJ. 
And Absolutely. further, like we are really off topic now. Yeah. We should probably they really need to go soon. Yeah. Okay. So can we just talk about like this real quick? I'm sorry. We were on Billy um, talking about the language and yeah. did they use language like that? Well, yes. And I, so they specific, the very beginning, there was about three things that really caused John Holdeman and some of his family to start Church of God in Christ Mennonite. Um, one of them was there was thoughts about starting Goshen College. A lot of them were from this area originally and uh, proving converts at baptism. But one big one was what they call child training. And they have come under fire for their child training. And so now the language has turned into here's what you do to not make things that leave evidence. Uh, and a particular person from my congregation um, killed a child. And I don't remember if it was a if she was somebody else's child. And I don't remember if they belonged to the church or not, but she went to prison for years for it. Um, she's out of prison now and, and, and leaves a very sober, quiet life. But because of the discipline of this infant, he died. And so I think that says all you need to know about how the Holdemans deal with it. That's terrible. Mary, you're muted. My bad. <laughs> I didn't say I was I was technologically savvy today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is terrible like it's so like prevalent that is the one common theme that stands out is our communities are portrayed to the outside world as being um peaceful they're they're non-violent they're conscientious objectors but when you get behind closed doors when you get behind what we allow the secular world to see there is an overall teaching of violence specifically towards children and sometimes women is included. Yes. And I want to add really quick, I've gone, you know, like I do the TikTok lives and stuff like that. And I actually had a case just recently where I was kind of talking about like not being politically aware and kind of like how, how I was not like educated in a lot of things. And there was people in the comments going like, oh, you need to go back to that community. This world is awful. Like you, you are like, they thought like the community they came from was so wonderful and that's how they view it. Like you should go back. This world is awful. Go back to your community. And they meant that these Christians, a lot of Christians, you know, I've had people say, some Christians will say I'm a cult, but, but the thing is, is most Christians value us as like being like, like just these wonderful people. So many Christians think we're great. Almost like please. we're closer to God, wouldn't you say? Yes. Please, please don't go back. Please don't. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I, I, when I, I would never, but I've had, you know, and I actually recently, just really quick, I recently was um, in a situation because I'm on like um, having a whole bunch of medical stuff, just had brain surgery, and I was uh, seeking, I'm a single mom, and I was seeking um, help um, for rent, and um, they weren't able to help me, and the lady, the social worker there said, it might be better if you go back to your community so they can help you. I any social worker that has any training, and much less a PhD, should know that none of this, like, they should not be perpetuating this, 
ever. Well, I actually spoke up against it, and I actually know that uh, the mayor of the town that I lived in, um, I'm on the southern Oregon coast, and I actually had her, I told her what happened, and the lady did get in trouble, and it was very powerful that I spoke up against that. She should never have told me. She had no education, no right to tell me, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Go back to your community. That's basically what she said. That's awful. So... Because you don't want to extend the work or you don't feel like you can extend the effort to help us. Now you're going to tell us to go back to our community for support. The very community where we just told you that violence is prevalent. The very community that we describe escaping from you. That is unacceptable. Unacceptable. And it violates every social worker ethic I have ever read. So, I remember the beachy people, they would send Holdemans who left the Holdemans and came to the beaches. They would send them back to the Holdemans. <laughs> oh, my God. I just, no, you can't send people back to their abusers <sighs> for support or access to resources. They're not going to get either of those things if you send them back to their abusers. So I want to ask one final question, though. Sorry, we still got Stephanie's, um, did her church use um, the language and, and how they define themselves and how that defined the group to the secular world versus how they actually conduct themselves. And then I have one final question for each of you. Um, am I muted? No, I'm not. No, no. Yeah, I got some stuff to say. <laughs> um. Okay. And I don't think we're, I don't think in talking about like, I don't think we're off topic at all mm -hmm. talking about child abuse. I think this is mm -hmm. the heart, this is the heart of the problem that sort of transcends all of the communities we come from. Um, I, I mean, I, I would say like, as I'm listening to you, I'll talk about the, the sheer amount of like um, physical child abuse happening in your communities. Um, that's my cat. Sorry, she scratches her claws really loudly. She's probably feeling some feelings. Um, and I like the community that I grew up in. I'm sure there's plenty of child abuse. So, like that, the kind of phenomena that you all are describing, like preaching violence against children from the pulpit, making places to beat children in church. Like I didn't grow up with any of that. Um, the violence that my kind of Mennonites commit in general, I think, is a lot more subtle. And one way that it manifests is the kind like <laughs> the kind of stuff we're talking about with professionals who should know better, um, letting people get away with abuse. Mm. It's, you know, I mean, Jeanette, Jeanette Harder, Dr. Jeanette Harder, the social worker we've been talking about, she is a Mennonite Church USA person. She founded Dove's Nest, which is an organization that for years was the child abuse prevention organization within Mennonite Church USA. She has very much uh, promoted an idea of, of plain people as just needing to know a little better. And the best way to reach them is through their leaders. And it's whatever. It's I'm, I'm so upset that we had like that Mennonite Church USA and the people who could hold one another accountable for this kind of exploitation are not doing it. Um, they aren't. There's total ignorance about the about her and the effects of her research for the most part. But I mean, I also just want to say that, like, you know, I 
certainly come from like the, the, the educated class of Mennonites, there are lots of social workers, there are lots of lawyers, there are lots of physicians, some of them do great work, and some of them work collectively to enable abuse in the same way that plain communities do. If you go onto the Mennonite abuse prevention list, for instance, and look at the, the entry for Arlen and Linda Kaufman and the Kaufman House in Newton, Kansas, um, that is a case that will look so similar right. to what happens to what happens in unlicensed plain like mental health facilities. Um, it's and and that is a case if you look at the the court transcripts, the judge was like the Mennonites in the area, the professional, educated, liberal Mennonites in the area who were social workers and physicians and therapists, all of them disregarded the survivors putting up red flags saying we're being abused in here, talked over them, patronized them, and ended up enabling some pretty similar abuse to, to, to what happens in plain communities. Extreme seclusion, like forcing people into nudity, sexual abuse, physical violence. Um, and it's still basically kind of like, don't talk about that here. It's divisive. It's ugly. We don't want to talk about it. Um, so the violence is more subtle. Um, the you know the identity as pacifist, nonviolent people is very very strong. The violence that is committed is still incredibly toxic, very prevalent, and you know, and unfortunately, spills <laughs> over. I mean, it the the abuse of professional degrees in order to enable abusers or to be abusers. <laughs> like that's a real problem. I think that is in a lot of it's, it's in churches in general, but like I, I see connections that that's where I see some strong connections between um, assimilated liberal Mennonites and plain people. Um, uh, I, I feel like that's a big point to make. These people are educated and they know better, and yet they continue to this. I have talked to the president, and I know that every vice president here at Goshen College knows what happened to me simply because I warned them about Jeanette. I didn't even say anything to her, and she behaved this way. And I'm, they still haven't done actually anything other than even today, I got an email from HR saying, like, I think Jeanette just wants an opportunity to tell you she didn't mean to cause you harm. Like, they, they don't oh, really mean oh, oh, hold on. Let me interject. So she wants an opportunity to gaslight you into thinking that it didn't really happen, which is exactly how she responded to the yes. open letter that I co-wrote, that I wrote, basically. And then people signed. There was like 20 Amish and Plain survivors that signed it. And then she emails me back specifically and names only me, doesn't address any of the issues that we brought up pretty much, except for research. And lied about that because she just published another article and tells me about my community as if she knows more about my community than I do. And further, then tells me she's a social worker, so she's trained to be able to do this. <clears throat> Please, let's also note the fact that when Jeanette was interviewed by me and Amanda Christ back in, I believe it was early 2020, she told us that she had never been plain dressing a day in her life. 
But somehow she has been elevated to be the expert on all things playing communities that involve children. So, yeah, let's just remember that. And no, I, I don't believe it's a good thing. But that is kind of like evidence of like how the society in general. So the narrative, when you start thinking about and I often describe Amish people, uh, culture as a um, caste system. When you start thinking about that and how like people with positions of power and privilege in the community, they have the most power. And then when you have researchers and media of all sorts that near that promote that narrative only, they're not actually being factual about Amish culture as a whole. They are in fact only elevating the voices of the most privileged people inside of the communities. And that is detrimental. That is killing our children. That is harming our people. I personally hear from, you know, I I hear accounts of um, suicide that happens to, you know, there's three accounts of, in my community. There's three of, people that I have known in my community that have unalived themselves. I hear accounts of people reaching out to domestic violence agencies and domestic violence agencies sending them back to their communities for supporting resources. I hear of people who report suspected crimes to DHS and DHS turns around and says we can't investigate them because they're Amish. I hear of people reporting crimes to DHS and DHS saying, oh, we're going to turn it over to their um, committee to investigate, and then we'll just go along with whatever the committee says. So as long as you perpetuate any of those things, you are in fact harming and killing my people. Further, when you hear of law enforcement, again, saying that person's Amish, I would never do that, then at that point, you are again perpetuating harm towards my children. This is why our people are killing themselves. And let's and not forget to add in the fact that in at least one county, the prosecutor has been convinced that it's against their religious beliefs for the community members to go to jail for child abuse. It's against their religious beliefs. No, um, it's not a lie. Exactly. It's such one a thing lie. I want to point about the unaliving is actually my uh, I was married in the Mennonite community and my husband unalived himself. Um, and it was never it was never investigated. Not only that, it was so disgusting, but he was not buried um, within the normal graveyard because of unaliving himself. It's absolutely horrendous um, what happened. I was getting emotional about it, but that's, yeah, that's why I'm a single mom now. And that was basically, I hate to say this, but his, his death is what really made me question things and made me leave, essentially leave the community. And it was so difficult when I left. I lived in the car um, with, with my son, a baby. Um, it was very difficult, but, um, but that's why I basically started questioning everything. Thank you for sharing that, Deirdre. Again, it is normal to have all the emotions that you're feeling. That, that was yeah, I'm getting like emotional talking about that. And and it affected your life. It was life changing for you in many ways. Yeah, so and nobody. It's like nobody cared. Like nobody talked about it. Like 
and like I said, it was never like investigated why somebody would do this. Like it was never like, no, just nobody cared. And like, and nobody wanted to talk about it because of what he did was, it was very wrong. Um, and so I, I wasn't even like allowed to like grieve. Like it was almost like I was taught not to grieve for him because of what he did. That's horrible. I'm sorry, Deirdre. That's it's awful. okay. I'm sorry. I just sometimes things get when you talked about it, it just brings up things. I'm I apologize yeah. about that. No, but. no, no. You don't have to apologize. Please don't. No, you're you're in the company of good friends here. Do not apologize. Yeah. Thank you, Billy, for being here. Billy has to take off. I do still have another question for each of the rest of you. Um, what I would like to ask is, so with the violence, the suicide, the way that the world views us versus like the reality. And when you start thinking about like the research on like CSA within the communities and, and all of that, like how do you reconcile the idea of pacifism with this violence? Well, I've been saying for a long time that um, I need to speak out. Um, there, there's only one way for it to stop, and that's for those of us who have left to have the courage to speak out. But it's really, really scary. Oh, it's terrifying. Uh, nobody, there's, there is no way to stop it without speaking out. And I, I honestly, I think it's going to take the government getting involved. Uh, and, but this is the, this is also the problem because the Supreme Court is, uh, it just like uh, Billy was saying earlier, they've just kind of given them a blanket. Um, the Supreme Court is now uh, run by crusaders and they are weaponizing the religious freedom and it's going to be really hard to get like, I, I, I don't, I honestly, I think it only will happen if we speak out, but I think people are going to just say, Oh, you guys are just crazy. You're angry and bitter and all this stuff. And, and that's what they do. They gaslight. Um, nobody believes us. Uh, and certainly not the government. They're not going to believe it. Um, and if they do try to do something, it'll go to Supreme Court and it'll get thrown out because the Amish are these are wonderful you people. Are, have you ever heard of Misty Griffin or Jasper Hoffman? No. Okay. So are you aware that um, last year, um, Misty Griffin and Jasper Hoffman actually traveled to Washington, D.C. and met with a congressperson to discuss Amish and plain abuse? and what the government can do. And are you aware that Missy Griffin has started a petition to provide education on appropriate touch, consent, bodily parts for all schools in America, including private schools? I you're muted. Missy Griffin and what was the other one? Jasper Hoffman. Um, 
and and the reason I say that is because I myself have literally said those very same words that you have said. The government doesn't hear us. The people around us don't hear us. The people, nobody listens to us and nobody cares. Nobody, quite frankly, nobody gave a fuck. And and when they and when they do hear the words come out of our mouth, I've been told over and over and over and over and over again, why don't you just leave them alone, quit being angry and bitter? I've been told that by family members, by all these people Same. over yes. and over again, because they think that the reason I speak out about this stuff is because I'm angry and bitter. You're right. I am really freaking angry because you're perpetuating violence against people who can't do anything about it over and over again. I am angry. I get, yes. I yeah. get told that a lot. I'm sorry that you went through that, but not everyone's like that. It doesn't oh. matter if not everybody's like that. We know there's a lot of people who are like that, who are on a regular basis causing harm to children. And that is why I will not shut up or stand down or be quiet until things are better for all the children. Yes, I am in this fight clear up to my deathbed. I will probably be gibbering on my deathbed telling people to protect the children because I will not be quiet. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Thank you for speaking up because I, I like I said that and then I, I will talk about like to people about like what the solution would be. How do we make changes in these communities? And a lot of time my response is like, like, uh, well, they're protected. They're, they're protected um, for, you know, freedom of religion. So you can't just go in there and, and do that because it goes against the right to, to practice religion. I get that a lot too. Where does religious freedom end and human rights begin? Where do children's rights begin? Where do your constitutional rights begin? Who so, is going to protect the people that don't, they don't even know better themselves. Like they think this is the way it's supposed to be. Like how, how can we expect them to be, be protected when they think that this is right? They think being beat within an inch of their life is normal. They don't even know. I thought it was after, you know, I like left the community. I got, I got, I met someone else and had my daughter and it was the most violent like horrible like he ended up spending four years in, in prison for what he did to me but it took me so long to realize I was even being abused because I did not know that it was abuse I did not know controlling me and doing those things were abuse I had no clue well and here's what I'd like to say to anyone who may have any position of governmental power or influence if you want to say that you can do nothing about the child abuse in plain dressing communities because religious freedom, religious rights, then I just say to you, what are you going to do if there's a group in your community or in the neighboring community that arises and says, it is part of our religious tradition to kill and eat people? Or it any be... part of our religious tradition to perform honor killings. Are you then going to say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do because no. it's their religious right? No, you would take action. Take action. Would... Take action and... about the children in plain communities and protect them. 
they would run those people out of town. I mean, it, it actually happened in Halil, or Halil, I don't know, remember how to pronounce it, Florida. Right. They will run the people out. Right. And that's the part I'm talking about, about weaponizing uh, freedom of religion. It should be freedom from religion. Uh, the only people who are protected by that are the Christian nationalists. That has to stop. It has to stop. And I think part of what I want to remind everybody, too, um, is, is of this, is there is power in our collective voices. There is power in how we talk openly about this. There is power in brokering and facilitating conversations that cause people to think about these things. So with that being said, would any of anybody else like to weigh in on how you can reconcile the pacifism stance or conscientious objector stance with the amount of abuse? Well, I think part of the problem in the communities I grew up in is that especially when it came to um, child sexual abuse, they would not have even recognized it as violence. They would have thought of it as just sex. And their attitude would have been that it was immoral and unbiblical, but it was just sex. So knock it off. Um, the perpetrator should repent. The child should repent because most of the time they thought the child needed to somehow repent. Um, and all will be well. And, and like it was like they couldn't even begin to understand the concepts of power and control and lack of consent. And so they further perpetuated additional harm against survivors of child sexual violence. And I think, again, with the child abuse, they so justify the physical discipline as a godly biblical thing that maybe got a little bit out of hand. And so they never stop to think about it as violence either. There is no real concept that they are, in fact, speaking with a forked tongue, so to speak, and allotting peace and nonviolence and kindness with one side of their mouth and then encouraging and supporting violence right out of the other side. It's a complete and utter disconnect. And the problem with the CSA, I experienced it. Um, I reported it once, never again. Um, and, and it was the same thing. I was seven years old and I, I had a discussion privately uh, with my mother, had a discussion about how I was sitting um, and different sort of things. The man that, that abused me, he had to go before um, the church and, and the leaders and confess what he did, but they all prayed over him and they, they forgive him. And he was able to go um, on with his life because then that's when, you know, um, all sin is equal. That's when they like to say that, that, that all sin is equal. Um, who are we to judge if, you know, God judges him. If he confesses, um, God can change him. God can take that away. You know, he, he fell from God, um, you know, and now, and now he's not. And so that, that's how it was treated. And it was adult man that did that to me. And like I said, I had a, I was, he had to apologize to me with my parents. He apologized and, and told, said that he was wrong. But then afterwards, like I said, my mother was told to have a conversation with me about my conduct. I mean, yeah, it's not your fault. It's, it's never, your, it's never your fault. 
it doesn't that's matter. The biggest, that's the biggest part about all of this. That uh, probably the part that makes me the angriest is how uh, the victims. I've talked to to so many that they they've been told that it's their fault, and it isn't. Not one bit. Right. We hear that all the time in our work, too. There's always some way that people try to justify and minimize the evil and the wickedness of the perpetrator and somehow find some way to put at least a little tiny bit of responsibility on the victim as if that's going to fix things. And it just doesn't. It only causes additional harm. It enables perpetrators of abuse and encourages people who might be considering abusing a child in the community to be emboldened and not take child abuse as seriously because they know that even if they do it and get caught, the community will largely rally around them and support them. It puts a target on the victim too. I want to point that out because when that happened to me, um, I felt like it put a target on my back for, for others to think that it was okay because one, if it happens to me again, what am I really, I'm really doing something wrong. Um, And, and, too, they know that I'm not going to report it again. There's no way because I'm going to be shamed for it. Do you know what I mean? And so it puts, when, when you are victimized and the and the, 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 the predator, or whatever you want to call them, is, is forgave them, it, like I said, it puts a target on that victim's back. Deirdre, further, and, and like the Amish community that I escaped from when I reported the abuse, um, there is somebody that is literally quoted as saying, if she was sexually assaulted and raped that many times, she was asking for it. So that, and that's how they treat it. And you know that, and that's the thing is I knew as a victim that that was when it happened to me again, that I couldn't speak up against it because there was going to be, some there's something I I felt like there was something wrong that I was doing. Like I can't even I don't even want to go into that, but that's what they that's what they treat you. That's how they treat you. And they like I said, when you when when it happens to you, then you become a then you become a target to be victimized over and over again. Right. Because the community, like I said, perpetrators or would be perpetrators know this isn't really going to be taken seriously. They know they can get away with it. And so, yes, of course, they go looking for the people who they know have already been given a bad reputation in the community because it will make it easier for them to molest those victims. That is absolutely true. And with that being said, I'd really like to move on to if, like, each of you has the space and capacity to, what would you say to somebody who lives in your former community today if they're experiencing things or, you know, maybe just thinking about things? If they happen to listen to this, what would you say to them? Um, well, I, I want to just say get out, but I know that that is really hard but i i will say that um law enforcement is available paramedics are available a hospital there are so many places that you can go to receive help there's domestic violence shelters there's there's so many places and you can 
even if it's just slipping out, um, go to the sheriff's office if you have one nearby and let them know what's going on. There's many of us, um, there's forums on Facebook. There's a lot of places where those of us that have escaped are at, and we would be happy to help you. Um, and I will tell you that the freedom that, that can come on the other side is immense. I can't even, I could never in my life dream of going back to that control and that it, it, you're not losing everything by leaving. You're gaining everything. There is, there's a whole world on the other side that will be happy to have you and will treat you well. Um, yeah, I, don't, I can't say much more. Thank you, AJ. That's a really beautiful message. What about you, Deirdre? Yeah, um, kind of what AJ was saying about um, you can go to a hospital um, or even I, I know that I didn't know how, what to do when I left. Um, so just reaching out to somebody, um, you know, on Facebook or on TikTok or one of these communities of people that have left can um, definitely direct you and help guide you and, and, and assist you on what to do. Um, the other thing that I want to say to um, the fellow plain woman um, that you deserve better. You are smart. You are intelligent. You are not weak. Um, you uh, <laughs> emotional say it. You have the ability to critical think you are smarter than what you're told and you are powerful and you can do it. What a powerful message. Thank you, Deirdre. That means a lot. What about you, Hope Ann? I run into people on the regular who say, but I love my community and I'm perfectly happy here. And to you, I would say, that's great. But are you sure that the children in your community and women in other homes are also loving the community and are safe and protected from abuse? And if you can't confidently answer yes to that, then you have some hard decisions to make. And I just want to encourage you that the community is only as safe and only as strong as the weakest and most vulnerable in that community are. So if you consider all of that carefully and realize you need to leave, everything that AJ and Deidre said, and I'll add one little caveat to that, when you're looking for support to leave a high control cult or abusive community, make sure that the people you're reaching out to are directing you to qualified professionals for help. If they're not, that might be a big red flag that they're not the safest or best people for you to be seeking for your system of support and information. Because occasionally, unfortunately, um, I think, as most of us know, there are people who are unscrupulous in the helping people business, and it can be easy for fresh survivors to accidentally fall prey to them. And I would just encourage you, don't fall prey to people that are going to add additional harm and stress to your journey. 
Can I add uh, one thing to that? Um, I would strongly, strongly encourage if you are looking for uh, help to get out, try to find a secular organization. Um, there's uh, one that I can think of off the top of my head that I have a lot of uh, respect for is DVIP, Domestic Violence Inter Intervention Program. And they are wonderful human beings, uh, but that takes away the, the the possibility that they're going to, uh, you know, try to try to manipulate the the yeah the situation in a religious manner. Go to a right. secular organization. Uh, that way, there's not that option again. Right. Thank you, AJ. That's really important. And thank you, Hope Ann, for so very carefully wording your um, words of advice. And I hope that means a lot to somebody and they find value in it. And what about you, Stephanie? Well, I think I want to speak to the members of my community that are still kind of enamored with plain people and see plain people as a sort of symbol of pacifism that they can have connection to an ownership of in some particular way. And I guess I just want to say um, we can, there, like, there is a role for those of us who come from progressive and liberal Mennonite backgrounds who have particular kinds of expertise. Um, there's a role for us in helping to end the kind of abuse that plane, plane survivors are talking about, but we have to let survivors lead. We have to let them lead and we have to follow. We can't go in, proclaim ourselves to be experts on their communities and, and then um, impose what we think is the right solution. The only way we can understand how to help people get out of these situations and how to be support and not just patronizing savior bullshit, the only way we can help is if we listen and learn and hear. Um, and I, I think that um, we have to understand that like pacifism, like just to bring it back, nonviolence, pacifism and controlling patriarchy are are a deadly combination and they're they're a deadly combination in our in our liberal progressive educated communities too we see that we live with that um we can't become apologists for the abuse in these communities and our default setting is to do that so we actually have to educate ourselves we really do and the only way to educate ourselves is not by reading like everything that Donald Crable and Steve Nolt have ever written. It's by listening to folks like or Karen Johnson or Karen Johnson or Jeanette Harder. Like it's by listening right. to survivors who have been through the kinds of things that these folks have been through. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. And now I'd like to say my message to everybody first off like thank you to our patreon subscribers for enabling this live stream today and your continued support we appreciate you 
Thank you to each and every one of our guests. I appreciate your ability to speak and your voices are so powerful. That means a lot to me because for many years, I felt like I was alone. I was a voice screaming into the abyss and I had nobody that would sit beside me and walk with me and talk with me and understand where I was coming from. And what I will tell you today is that like all of the panelists on here, including Stephanie, made me feel like we were heard. Our voices were heard. Our voices matter. We have powerful voices and we get to speak about our culture. We know more about our culture than so-called self-proclaimed experts. And we get to actually talk about differences. Amish people are not Mennonites. Plain people are not just Amish. You know, Mennonites are not Amish. There is a difference. And when we speak truth to power, we own our stories. And part of owning our stories is telling the truth about who we were. When I say I was Abe Troyer Amish, that means something. People who know what Abe Troyer Amish is, they know what that means. When I say I was Old Order Amish and I lived in four different communities, that means something. When Deirdre says I was the Brethren, that means something. When Stephanie says I was MCUSA, that means something. And when AJ says I was Beachy Amish, again, that means something. Because at the end of the day, while we're all termed as Anabaptists by so-called experts, that doesn't mean that we all have the same beliefs, even though they try to lump us all in as together. And as we clearly heard, there's a variety of beliefs and flavors. What was it? Six different communities represented. And, and there's a variety of flavors of beliefs. And so if you're, you know, like one Amish person, you know, one Amish person. If you know one Amish community, you know, one Amish community, regardless the other thing that stood out to me is the manipulation of the narrative. So if you're an outsider, you do not get to see. When I tell you Amish people are skilled at creating a facade, they are. We are trained to create a facade. We are trained. The government wants our children. We are trained and we are told what we are allowed to tell the government when they do investigations. There are people that will literally lie to the government's face if they're like investigating child abuse. It happens repetitively. And until we all band together and start speaking truth to power openly and authentically, we haven't even begun to fight. So thank you all. Thank you all for listening. Know that you're not alone. None of you are alone. There are others. And with that being... Mm -hmm.